The injuries pile up for Mikel Arteta's Arsenal, who travelled down to the south coast on Saturday to take on Andoni Iraola's Bournemouth. We're going to preview that fixture and look back a little bit more on the victory over Brentford on this edition of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back along to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast, part of, of course, the 90 Min football family as ever. I'm your host, Harry Simeon, and on this edition, we're going to look ahead to that trip to Bournemouth coming up tomorrow afternoon. I'll be heading down to the south coast um, for that one. Fingers crossed Arsenal can get a positive result. Fingers crossed Arsenal have got a good enough, strong enough uh, 11 to field, uh, given the injury crisis that appears to be upon us at this moment in time. We'll bring you all the latest news on that. We're going to discuss uh, Mikel Arteta's press conference, which he gave earlier on in the day. Uh, We're also going to look back a little bit more at the victory over Brentford, not in terms of the game on the whole, but there was a couple of bits that I just really wanted to home in on. I wanted to talk about Takahiro Tomiyasu's performance at centre-back. We're going to go into that in quite a bit of detail. We're also going to talk about Emil Smith-Rowe's display and highlight some of his movement and how he could be um, ready to come back into the side. Uh, We're also going to discuss the press uh, and we're going to spend a fairly long time at the end of this show taking you guys' questions because I'm just conscious that we haven't really done enough of that on the last few episodes. So lots and lots to get into. I can see there are lots and lots of you with us in the live chat, which is always great to see. Uh, Big hello to uh, Silvio. We've got Derek. Damien uh, is with us as well. John too. uh, Delisu. uh, Arsenal Adventure is here. We've got um, Derek. uh, Joey. uh, La Odegaard. I like that. Uh, We've got Tom. We've got the Canterbury Gooner who says, Happy Friday, Harry. Finally catching you live. Good to see you, mate. Uh, BX Gunner uh, is here as well. We've got um, Jimmy Flo, uh, Wandering Minstrel. Sanjeev is with us. Uh, We've got Kelly, um, Oguchukwu and Hafsa, uh, as well as everybody else joining us in the live chat. If I've missed you out, I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, But we need to get on with the content. So we're going to do exactly that. And I guess... The first thing is to say, well, it feels um, a bit shit at the moment, doesn't it? When Arsenal are obviously struggling with the fitness of so many key players. You're not just talking about squad players. You know, often I hear managers say, well, we've got 12, 13 players out at this moment in time. And and often I think, well, only four or five of them would actually start for you. But in our case, um, you know, there are a lot of players on the sidelines now that would almost certainly be in the starting 11. You know, we're hearing that Bukayo Saka is a doubt. He would definitely start. William Saliba too. Thomas Partey, uh, Declan Rice. One of Trossard or Martinelli would probably start rather than both of them. But, you know, this is a difficult situation that we're having to deal with at the moment. Jury and Timber as well, a long-term absentee, of course. On a slightly more positive note, I've sort of been told and, and have heard and have read as well, um, that Jurian Timber is further along in his recovery than was expected at this moment in time. But I still wouldn't be putting any pressure or expectation on him, given the nature of his injury. And the same can be said for Thomas Partey, who some are going as far as saying is two weeks ahead of schedule in terms of his return, which would be amazing. But again, you don't want to push too hard and you don't want to risk further injuries. 
Um, I can see we've got a few of you joining us from uh, from Australia, uh, which is amazing. Big hello to Tony and Angela joining us uh, from down under as well. Uh, good to see you guys in the chat. I can see a few of you have popped some questions in there as well. Hold fire on them and um, keep a hold of them. And later on in the show, I'll ask you to flood the chat box with questions and we'll do uh, a long section on that. But let's start off then by reflecting, I guess, on Mikel Arteta's press conference, uh, which took place earlier today ahead of the trip down to the South Coast. Mikel Arteta faced the media. And here are some of the highlights from what Mikel Arteta had to say. Rice, Saka, Trossard and Martinelli have not trained yet. Um, of course, Saka picked up uh, a knock at the end of the North London derby. Uh, Declan Rice picked one up during uh, the sort of middle point of the North London derby. Leandro Trossard was injured prior to that and Gabriel Martinelli too. William Saliba, who, of course, wasn't involved against Brentford. I mean, I've got to say, on the night, there was no suggestion that there was a problem, and I just assumed that he was being rested. But actually, Mikel Arteta has since uh, let us know that he had, and I quote, a knock, um, which is why he didn't feature at all. Also, Fabio Vieira. Mikel Arteta said he wasn't fit enough to take part in that game either, which suggests that he is carrying some sort of problem. And I guess the squad depth is really, really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? Mikel Arteta was asked about whether, you know, the fact that we play Manchester City next weekend, obviously after a trip to Lons in the Champions League as well, he was asked if that plays a part in whether or not he'll be kind of pushing people back, rushing people back, if you like. And Mikel Arteta was very clear on the fact that he will not be doing that, right? It's one game at a time. And I think that's the right way to look at it. I've been in some WhatsApp groups this morning with sort of friends and we've been having this debate back and forth you know should you go with a team that played at Brentford um at Bournemouth sort of trusting and hoping that you can get through it and pick up all three points even with a slightly changed weekend side whatever you want to call it or do you you know if some of these players are for example on the the cusp of being back do you push them do you risk it listen I think every single one of these cases has to be assessed on an individual level and only then can you make the right decisions and the right calls. But I don't buy into this save them for Man City mentality because if you go and drop points at Bournemouth, it doesn't even matter if you beat Manchester City because that advantage um, that you would hope to gain will be cancelled out by the fact that you got a bad result on the road at Bournemouth. So for me, you know, I'm I'm not really buying into that idea of saying, well, if someone's, I don't know, 80% fit, I'm not going to risk that extra 20% for Bournemouth because Manchester City is on the horizon. I think you've just got to assess it game by game. I think in the Champions League, and this sounds wild because the Champions League is Europe's premier competition, I think you're more likely to get away with some of the changes because some of the opposition in our group. Now, I'm not saying that Lons aren't a good side. You know, that would be remiss of me. That would be disrespectful of me. And I'm not saying that I'm happy to drop points in that Champions League group. But if we were to go and get a point, for example, um, in Lons on Tuesday night, then you wouldn't feel that that particularly damages our chances of getting through the group. In the Premier League, where you're chasing Manchester City, who you know are relentless and very rarely drop points, you would feel like dropping a couple of points at Bournemouth could be a problem. So that's the way I see it. If I'm going to prioritise one over the other, it's probably Bournemouth for me, which maybe sounds crazy, but um, that's just the way sort of I, I read the situation. Mikel Arteta was also asked uh, during the press conference, uh, about 
at a time he can remember two world-class goalkeepers competing for a place uh, during his playing career. I think, I don't know who asked that question. I can't remember. Um, and I couldn't really hear the voice to make out who it was. But it is a question that keeps coming up, isn't it? This whole goalkeeping situation. Mikel Arteta must be sick to death of it. I'm sick to death of it, to be honest with you. Um, but the way this question was put across to Mikel Arteta, and I could be wrong, felt as though it was intended to maybe try and trip him up, um, maybe sort of cause him to kind of hesitate and stutter and and not be able to think of a couple of goalkeepers on the spot, therefore sparking um, you know, opinions and stories about how actually Mikel Arteta's maybe making this up as he goes along. But Mikel Arteta was on the ball. He knew it was as if he knew this question was coming. And he said, uh, yeah, I can. I remember um at a youth side that he was playing at uh, in the Basque area, whose name he referenced, but it just escapes me. I do apologize. Um, but then he talked about his time at Barcelona, where he said that both Victor Valdez and Pepe Reina uh, were at the club and that at 13, 14 years old or whatever it was, he felt very, very safe knowing that he had two top class goalkeepers uh, behind him. So Mikel Arteta, um, very, very quick to, to shut that kind of chat down. And um, yeah, rightly so, I thought. Um, OK, uh, we're going to take it on a little bit. But before we do that, if I could just ask you to please leave a like on the video if you haven't done so already. Subscribe as well uh, to the channel if you're brand spanking new. It really uh, really does help. Um, we're going to go over to the Premier League's website, as we tend to do on our big match preview show. That's what we're calling the preview shows now on the Chronicles of Aguda, the big match preview. Um, we're going to uh, look ahead, as I say, to this fixture uh, at Bournemouth, the trip down to the south coast. I believe it's around about a two hour drive uh, from the North London area. I'll be setting off, um, I guess, pretty early because I'd, I'd need to be there a little while before the kickoff. I am covering the game for BBC Radio London. So if you are unable to watch it and you, you want to keep across the action, that is uh, one of the options for you. Tune in to BBC Radio London if you're in the London area and I'll be bringing you uh, updates uh, from that one, which I'm really, really uh, looking forward to. Right. Let's um share this page with you guys. Uh, for those of you that are watching online, for those of you that are listening, don't worry. Um, I'll take you through all the statistics and all the things that you need to know as we work our way through this. In terms of radio commentary, this one is live on TalkSport in the UK, so you can have a listen to that. Head-to-head -head between these two clubs in the Premier League, 12 meetings between the two sides, and the Gunners come out well on top. Nine wins from 12, uh, two draws uh, with uh, Bournemouth, and just the one win for this weekend's hosts. Recent meetings... Um, if you go back to uh, the 4th of March, Arsenal beat Bournemouth 3-2. Remember that? The Reese Nelson goal. What a game that was. Um, we also beat them really, really comfortably earlier on that season with um, a 3-0 win on the road. If you remember, William Saliba scored that cracking goal, didn't he? Gabriel Jesus was brilliant. Um, Arsenal really at that point. I'm not going to say it was that specific game, but I thought at that time, people were starting to look at Arsenal and go, hold on a minute. This is a team, isn't it? On the Boxing Day prior, uh, we were held to a 1-1 draw at the Vitality Stadium for straight and result that um, on Thursday, 26th of December 2019. That was, of course, the last time that Bournemouth were in the top flight. Going back a little bit further, we beat them at the Emirates Stadium on Sunday, the 6th of October 2019. And on the 27th of February 2019, we beat them 5-1 at home. So Arsenal have won four of the last five meetings between Arsenal and Bournemouth, and there's been one draw between the two clubs. 
In terms of their form guide so far this season, uh, the Gunners have won three of their last five, two draws along the way, draws at home to Fulham and at home to Tottenham, both 2-2. Arsenal conceded way too many goals at home. We've already discussed that. Bournemouth haven't won in their last five under Andoni Iraiola. I'm not going to go as far as saying he's under pressure, but it is a job where there is very little margin for error, you have to say. Um, you know, Bournemouth's position, I would have said, going into the season was precarious anyway. Andoni Iraiola came in to try and sort of bring a new style of football. Um, I think he's a really clever man, a really clever coach. I spoke to him after uh, Bournemouth's draw at Brentford uh, a few weeks back. It was 2-2 on the day. That was very much a game of two halves. I thought that Brentford were excellent in the second half and deserved in the end to get the point that they did. But Bournemouth, uh, for me, were were really, really good um, in the first half of that game. And uh, the player that really stood out to me was, um, was Ryan Christie. Um, you know, I haven't watched much of Bournemouth in between then and now, I have to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, they did uh, get a draw with Chelsea. Um, I, I don't know if that's really saying that much anymore. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think they're a dangerous opponent, but they're an opponent that I would back us to beat, although that changes when you know how many players Arsenal have out and all the rest of it. Season so far, the Cherries sit down in 17th place. Arsenal are in fifth at the moment. We've won four of our games so far, drawing two. Bournemouth have won none in the season. Three draws, three defeats for them. On average, they score 0.83 goals per game in comparison to Arsenal's 1.83, so just under two per game for the Gunners at the moment. Uh, they concede on average just under two goals a game. We concede uh, one on average per game, but at home it seems to be much higher than that. The rest of the stats, uh, chances created, all the rest of it, I'm not really sure how accurate that is, so I'm going to swerve that. In terms of top player stats, in terms of the top goal scorers across these two sides, you've got Bukayo Saka, you've got Dominic Solanke, both on three. Eddie Nketiah comes in in third place uh, with two. When it comes to assists, Fabio Vieira leads the way across these two sides uh, with two. Well, I say leads the way. He's joint top with Martinelli and Bukayo Saka. In terms of the most passes, again, it's three Arsenal players at the top of the par. William Saliba, Ben White and Declan Rice. When it comes to tackles, though, Milos Kerkes, um, who is a fullback, who was one of the players I was, I don't want to say massively impressed with, but kind of impressed with, actually, that day when I saw them take on Brentford. So he's one to look out for. Um, Bukayo Saka, surprisingly, actually, sits second in this, in the most tackles made by any player across these two sides. Bukayo Saka is in second place with 17 and third is Bournemouth's Max Aaron. So those are some of the statistics going into this one. Changed your opinion at all on how you think this one's going to go? Hmm. Um, we'll get into a little bit more in terms of the preview in just a second. But before we do that, we're going to take a really, really, really brief pause. Um, so please uh, don't go anywhere. Um, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment to continue our look ahead to the trip to Bournemouth. And then we're going to look back on some of the elements um, of the Brentford game and spend a, a hefty while talking through your questions. We'll be back in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back along to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min football family. Thank you uh, for bearing with us there. Be sure to leave a like on the video if you haven't done so already. It really, really does help. And also, if you're new about town, 
then please do subscribe to the channel as well. That helps massively as we continue to crawl ever so slowly uh, towards that 30,000 subscriber mark here on YouTube. Of course, if you're listening on audio, uh, we'd love you to be subscribed here. And of course, um, leave us a review if you haven't done so already. Right then, let's get back to our big match preview because Arsenal travel down to the South Coast to face Bournemouth. Okay, so we've been through Mikel Arteta's press conference. We've taken the highlights from that. Let's take this on um, a little bit further and let's talk about my starting 11 for this game. Now, this was really, really difficult to do. A lot of the time, I can pick my starting 11 in the space of a minute. You know, there may be a few considerations taken here and there, but generally speaking, I can pick my Arsenal starting 11 really, really quickly. I think there are certain players suited for certain games and all the rest of it, but I genuinely do think that we have a best 11, um, even with all the additions that we made in the summer. And um, unfortunately for us, we haven't been able to play that best 11 very often because there's always been someone, you know, maybe one, two, three at times, missing, absent, etc. all the rest of it. But here is um, my 11 then for this one. We'll run through it uh, slowly. So I'm going to start with Aaron Ramsdale in goal. Now that might surprise people. They might think, well, David Raya didn't play on Wednesday. Therefore, he is definitely 100% in line to come back in um, uh, against Bournemouth at the weekend. For me, Aaron Ramsdale put in such a good performance, I thought, you know, that save he made was excellent down to his left-hand side, just getting the slightest of touches and tipping the effort onto the post, which was crucial in the end. You know, I thought his distribution on the night was fantastic, much better than anything we saw from David Raya uh, in the game uh, against Spurs. You know, again, I don't want to kill David Raya for one performance, but I keep saying it. I've been saying it throughout the week, actually. You know, I didn't see anything that day that made me go, oh, that's why David Raya plays ahead of Aaron Ramsdale. And although Raya was comfortable against Everton and comfortable against PSV, I still felt the same after those games as well. I don't really see what's so significant about David Raya at this point that you would just by default move Aaron Ramsdale to one side. I think Aaron Ramsdale is great. Um, and I think he'll be buzzing with the fact that he's returning to a former club. So I'd play Aaron Ramsdale. My right back would be Ben White. Um, I thought he looked tired against Spurs, as I said. I thought at times he looked tired um, against Brentford. And you can understand why he came off uh, when he did. But, you know, based on the injury problems that we've got, this is the only way to go for me. I'm going with Tommy Asu at centre-back. If there is a risk around Saliba, that is one that I wouldn't um, chance because of, A, how important he is to the team and how important he'll be to us moving forward. But B, because Takahiro Tomiyasu had such a good game, which we're going to come on to a little bit later on at Brentford, that I don't have any real fears or concerns about the replacement coming in here. I think Tomiyasu throughout his career has played at centre-back. It showed the other night, and I'd be more than happy for him to start in this one. Alongside him, Gabriel, who I thought was great the other night. Again, I think his performances sometimes go under the radar, which frustrates me. I think people are caught up on the fact that two, three seasons ago, he would make the odd mistake, but he's definitely, definitely moved past that. And he's a really, really important player for us. At left back, Zinchenko comes uh, back into the side for me. Um, not so much because, you know, he's, he's brilliant defensively. In fact, if we're talking about, um, you know, defensive credentials alone, then there is an argument that Jakub Kivio should play. I think he's a far better defender 
and Alexander Zinchenko. I think when teams try to go with diagonal long balls over the top of Zinchenko, it can be a problem and it forces Gabriel to have to drift out wide to deal with it. That isn't the case with Jakub Kivior because he's got that aerial presence himself. But I did think at times when Jakub Kivior tried to step into midfield against Brentford, he wasn't bad. And I think he's better at doing it than Tommy Asu is. But he, you know, he, he looks like a centre-back, doesn't he? It's all a little bit clunky. It's all a little bit sort of untidy. And and that, you know, I think is, is the difference. Zinchenko brings you that silkiness in midfield. Um, he'll have to get close to whoever plays at defensive midfield this time because we think that Declan Rice is probably going to be out given that he's uh, not trained uh, at the time of recording, uh, which is obviously a worry. Let's take it on then to that next position. And for me, it's Jorginho. Look, he had a stinker when he came on against Spurs, you know, in that he made the mistake that ultimately was the difference between Arsenal getting all three points and in the end only ending up with one. But I thought, once he made that mistake, he steadied himself quite well. And then when he was tasked with starting the game and captaining Arsenal at Brentford the other night, I thought he was really, really good. He gave the ball away once, I can remember, in the first half in a sort of semi-dangerous position really early on in the game. But after that, I don't think he put a foot wrong. Listen, I'm not saying that I prefer Jorginho in that position over Partey or over Rice. But as far as third choices go, I think he's pretty good. Okay, Mohamed Elneny come back the other night. He got some minutes as well. He'll be on the bench and he'll be someone I'd probably be looking at depending on the game state at a certain point in the match. But to start for me, it has to be Jorginho. Alongside him would be Martin Odegaard, the captain, obviously didn't start the game the other night, came off the bench um, sort of late on. For me, you know, he comes, he walks straight back into the side because he's Arsenal's uh, best player. Um, Kai Havertz will play alongside them. Again, that's partly down to the fact that Fabio Vieira is a doubt. Kai Havertz will bring some physicality to that midfield. I know people say he's languid and he doesn't really do much and he doesn't really run around a lot. Actually, statistically, he does. He enters a lot of duels. Um, he comes out on top in a lot of those physical duels. Can he do more going forward? Yeah, of course he can. We all know he can and we all know he's capable. And that's why I think there is that frustration around Kai Havertz and his performances so far in Arsenal colours. But when you look at the injury problems that we've got, when you look at the shape that we head into this game in, I think he has to be in the starting eleven. Out on the left-hand side, I'd go with Emil Smith-Rowe. Um, again, partly because we think that Fabio Vieira uh, is a doubt. Some of you will be thinking, well, Enketia and Jesus are both available. So Arteta will probably stick one of them out on the left-hand side. And you know what? Maybe he will. I wouldn't be surprised if he did that, Mikel Arteta. But for me, it's not the way to go. It really, really isn't the way to go. Um, because... I think it unbalanced us against Spurs. I think we ended up taking our biggest asset in Gabriel Jesus in terms of that forward line and basically chucking him out um, onto the flank and hoping that it worked. And, and to me, it didn't. On the other side, I'd go with Reese Nelson. Now, again, in an ideal world, if I'm going to start Reese Nelson, I'll probably start him from the left-hand side. I've said to you guys over and over again, I think he plays his best football from there. The problem is, is that Emil Smith-Rowe, for me, can't really offer that the same thing from the right. So that's why if Smith Rowe is the one in my team, that means that I've got to move Nelson um, out of the way. 
And then I've gone with Gabriel Jesus up front. So I've left out Eddie and Ketia. That might surprise people. And if I'm being honest, if I had to guess what Mikel was going to do, um, then I'd probably guess that Nelson plays in the front three with Jesus and Nketia. And I would imagine that that would mean Jesus would be the one probably to move out onto the right-hand side. We know he's better there than on the left. Um, that would probably mean that Nelson, who is stronger on the left, moves back into his preferred side and Nketiah plays through the middle. If I'm predicting what Mikel's going to do, I would say all of this is correct up until that front line where I think that Smith Rowe is replaced by Eddie Nketiah. But this is what I would do. I don't think Emil Smith-Rowe's got 90 minutes in his legs yet. And I wouldn't be starting him with the idea of him playing the entire 90. But, you know, you'd hope that if he's as sharp as he was in the first half against Brentford, you can get your noses in front and you can get yourselves into a situation where you're then able to make changes, able to make substitutes later on and essentially manage the game, uh, which is obviously really, really important. So that's my starting 11 then um, to uh, face... Bournemouth down on the South Coast uh, tomorrow, of course, uh, tomorrow afternoon. It's a 3 p.m. kickoff, not being televised in the UK. But if you want to listen to it on the radio, you can listen to it on TalkSport. You can also find it on the Arsenal uh, website uh, and app. You can listen to the commentary there or you can tune into BBC Radio London, uh, where I'll be bringing you regular updates uh, from the Vitality Stadium and keeping you across all of the happenings from this one. Looking forward to it. Right. OK. Um, any questions? Any thoughts on this particular element of the show? Um, my 11. You're happy with it? You're not happy with it? Let's see what you guys have been saying while I've been uh, rolling through that. Um, duh, 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 duh. Uh, Mikey says that Raya is here to move Ramsdale from complacency. Uh, he's a good keeper. I think he's a good keeper as well. The, the point I was trying to make was that they they should be competing, yes, but I haven't seen anything from Raya yet that makes me go, bloody hell, that's why he's the number one. Do you see what I mean? That moment might come, but it hasn't come for me yet. Eugene says Raya will start tomorrow. Ramsdale makes his team uh, makes his team and colleagues feel under pressure. When I said that I think there'll be one change to my 11, I forgot about the goalkeeping thing. I'm so sick of hearing about it. That almost blocked it out of my mind. You're right. I think that Raya will play, but it's not what I would do. MM says, if Rice is not available, I'm worried about being overrun in the midfield. I'm always worried about that in our midfield, even when Rice is there, because we've got two really forward-thinking players alongside him. Um, yes, the job of Zinchenko would be to come in field and help and support with that. Uh, but I'm always worried about that. And that's why I've repeatedly said from the start of the season, if I was picking Arsenal's best 11, I don't put Kai Havertz in it. I don't put Fabio Vieira in it. For me, I put Declan Rice in that slightly more advanced position. And I have Thomas Partey sitting at the base. Matthew Lee Benjamin says Jorginho was really good versus Brentford. He really was and deserves uh, to continue in the side. BX Gunner says, I'd like to see Kivior start another game, um, get a little bit of a run together. Arsenal Adventure says, would you play Havertz up front and Emil Smith-Rowe as the centre midfielder? Jesus at, on the right wing and him and Havertz can switch. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be adverse to Havertz playing up front if that's the way that we want, that, that Mikel Arteta wanted to go. The problem I've got with Smith Rowe playing in the midfield right now is this. I think 
he isn't being considered for the left eight position because he's right footed. And I think Mikel Arteta is really big on having that right balance in terms of players playing on their stronger side, stronger feet, all the rest of it. Aside from on the wings where he wants players to be able to cut in and make a difference. I th- I really do think that that is a thing for Mikel Arteta. I'm not saying that he shouldn't play as the left-sided eight because he's right-footed, because Declan Rice is right-footed and he's played there before. But I think that that might play a part in the thinking. I have to say that. Um, but yeah, let's continue uh, through. Uh, Russ Morgan says, our team is decimated. It absolutely is, mate. We're decimated by injuries at this moment in time. What I will say is, you know, Mikel Arteta has often done this where he's kind of told us that there's a really, really bad situation or that someone's not trained. He hasn't ruled them out, but he said they've not trained. From that, we've all inferred that, or, or, or pick your pardon, we've all in- assumed that that means that that player's unavailable. And then bang, the team sheet comes out and they're in the side. I'm not saying he's doing this this time because I don't know, but there is a chance that with some of these players, they stand a far greater chance of being available than maybe Mikel Arteta wants to let on the day before the game. So I'm going to be really, really interested to see how we look, uh, of course, come what time's the team coming out? 2pm on Saturday. Interesting. Uh, Ayo Ade says, uh, what of Saliba? Well, he's got a knock from what we were told this morning. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to wait and see, um, you know, if he's available. If he's available, of course he plays. You know, if he's fit enough to start, then yeah, of course, he's he's one of the first names on the team sheet for me every single week. Robbie says, uh, morning, Harry, uh, Idaho, Guna here again. Hope you're well, mate. He says, uh, glad to catch your spiel live. Really appreciate your show. Out of curiosity, any merit swapping Tommy and White if Saka's not in to protect White a bit? Um, it's interesting because when I was uh, working on the game on Wednesday night, when the team news first came out, um, and and sort of the the presenter in the studio threw over to me and said, "Harry Simu, let's have the teams from uh, from the G Tech Community Stadium." And I read the team out. I had it in my head that Ben White was going to be tucking in at centre back alongside Gabriel, and that Tommy Asu would be playing at right back. That was how I had it in my head. Why? Because that's what we tended to see. You know, if you go back to the season before last, that was our central defensive pairing: Ben White and Gabriel, with Tommy Asu playing at right back. Although we've always known that Tommy Asu can play as a centre-half and does play as a centre-half at international level, even currently, we'd never really seen it at Arsenal. It was never really given a go. And so I just assumed by default that Arteta would put White inside, and he didn't. He didn't. He went with Tommy Asu at centre-back, and I think it was a really good decision because it gave us a lot of stability, um, a lot of solidity. The other thing you got to think is that Tommy Asu is seen by a lot of people as being two-footed as well. And so if you're in a central position, that probably is a little bit more handy. Um, it's handy anywhere on the pitch, don't get me wrong. But if you're a centre-back, it means that people can't take you on either way um, without you being relatively comfortable. So, yeah, we're going to have to wait and see. But I think there is no reason to change it, um, given how well it worked in terms of Tommy Asu tucking in alongside Gabriel on Wednesday night. So I think Arteta would be taking a risk there. Uh, John Daly says, why can't Kivio play at left back and Zinchenko play in midfield or on the left wing? I wouldn't put Zinchenko on the left wing. I don't think he's got the pace. I don't think he's got 
the trickery in terms of being able to, I know he's great on the ball and technically superb, but I can't see him beating too many men, if that makes sense. Whereas Emil Smith-Rowe can pick up the ball and can dribble. Leandro Trossard can, Martinelli can, Nelson can. I think that's something that Arteta looks for in his wingers, the ability to commit people and really, really go at them. Zinchenko playing in midfield, I'm not adverse to that because, you know, he's always said that he likes to play in midfield and people have repeatedly said, well, he's not a defender, he's not a fullback, he's actually a midfielder. And that to me makes a lot of sense. But again, it's something that we haven't really seen at Arsenal. And I mean, when you think about it, really, and you really break this down, Zinchenko will be playing in midfield for most of the game. Might not be there on paper, but he'll certainly be in those areas and in those positions. Um, I'm going to take a couple more questions on this because I'm just conscious of time. Uh, but then we were, we'll move on. Um, John Daly says Zinchenko plays in that position for Ukraine. He does, but not for Arsenal. And um, and that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Um, Ryan says, do you think Arteta is managing the squad with regards to rotation? I get the feeling he only drops players if they're not fit to play. I feel he doesn't trust fringe players. Uh, I used to think that, you know, he he didn't trust his fringe players. I think he does more now than ever. And that shows you the evolution of the squad and how the squad's improved over time. And that's, in time, I think, changed his outlook on things. But, yeah, listen, there isn't a manager in the world that, that doesn't have certain players that they look at and go, you are absolutely categorically first choice. You can still appreciate the depth of your squad, but have your favourites and your players that are, you know, nailed on. For me, the two centre-backs are nailed on. Gabriel and Saliba, when they're fit, they play. Zinchenko is another one. You know, whether you agree with that or not, you know, he is in Arteta's eyes. Odegaard's another one. Jesus is another one. Saka's another one. Martinelli and Trossard it can be a bit of a toss-up at times. Um, you know, some will prefer Martinelli. Some will prefer Trossard. I think they're both valid points and valid arguments, but it could be a toss-up, couldn't it, between those two? Where there is always going to be certain positions in your team that you go, he's the guy, he's the man, he's the one I want. And that's what I'm going to go with whenever that is possible. Okay, we're going to take a really, really short pause uh, once again. Uh, and when we return, uh, we're going to go back to uh, Wednesday night's game at Bournemouth. Not because we want to go over the game in detail again. It was a game um, that wasn't that great, really. Um, Arsenal got the result, but there were a couple of elements uh, that I wanted to pick out from it. I want to talk uh, Takahiro Tomiyasu. I want to talk Arsenal's high press and I want to talk Emile Smith-Rowe. So we'll do all of that just after this break. And then, of course, we're going to head into the chat box for your questions. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back along to the Chronicles of Aguna. Let's go back to Arsenal's game on Wednesday night at the GTEC Community Stadium, where the Gunners, of course, took on Brentford. Arsenal going uh, out and winning 1-0 and booking their place in the next round of the Carabao Cup, where they will face West Ham United. I mean, how's your luck? It's pretty crap in it. Like we could have got someone much easier at home um, and then potentially could have been in the quarterfinals of the competition. Um, I still think we're capable. You know, that team that won at Brentford, if you win at Brentford, why can't you win at West Ham? It, you know, it's it's possible. But yeah, not the ideal draw. You, you have to say that. Uh, great that Man City went out, which opens the door on this competition for a lot of people, um, which is exciting. Credit to Newcastle for being able to overcome them. But yeah, um, I don't really know how I feel about the Carabao Cup at the moment. Like I started out the week not really bothered. I'm still not that bothered, but 
I have to say Manchester City's exit from the competition has increased my interest in perhaps pursuing um, the, the, the latter stages or however you want to put it. But anyway, let's look back on Brentford versus Arsenal then. Uh, I want to start off by focusing on Takahiro Tomiyasu at centre-back. What a performance it was uh, from the Japanese international. I thought he was great. What did you make of his display? Um, let me know in the uh, comments while I take you through some analysis. Bear with me, just need a sip of the coffee. Throat's a little bit tingly today. Here's um, a situation that developed in the first half. Now, of course, Takira Tomiyasu was named Arsenal's player of the match and he made plenty of vital contributions throughout the night. Uh, but I've just highlighted a couple of moments that show that centre-back is a position that he's really, really comfortable in. After all, as I say already, he plays there for Japan and has played there for all of his previous clubs. And this first screenshot that I'm showing you guys, those of you that are watching on YouTube, uh, he steps forward to block a Vitaly Yanel shot um, after a poor clearance. I think it was initially from Ben White. Now, just take a look at, at Tommy Asu here, right? You can see him circled there right in front of Aaron Ramsdale. Right. You could argue that he's blocking the goalkeeper's view, but he's not just going to jump out of the way, is he? It's a difficult one for Aaron Ramsdale. And so you've got to trust in your centre-halves to use their big frames, the big bodies, and make sure that they don't allow that ball through if possible. The other massive, massive risk here as a centre-back when you're going to block something like this is, you know, you can make yourself big. And if the ball ricochets off of you because it's struck with venom and power, it can end up anywhere. You can quite easily, if you get this wrong and you're not fully 100% concentrated or even you're unfortunate, which can happen as well, but you could very, very easily wrong foot your goalkeeper and divert this into the back of your own net. So the way you have to concentrate here, the way he's set up means that he's agile in terms of his stance. He can shift his weight right. He can shift his weight left. He's got his big body, his big frame. He's got his hands behind his back to prevent any risk of conceding a penalty. And he goes on to block this shot and get Arsenal out of a spot of bother there. Brilliant, brilliant defending from Takahiro Tomiyasu. Here's another example. This was in the second half uh, where Brentford were attacking down the right-hand side. The cross uh, was about to come in from the right-hand side. And you can see uh, here that Tomiyasu is sort of quite close to Gabriel, um, his central defensive colleague. But whilst Gabriel is looking at helping Jakub Kivior and trying to be the second line of defence to that ball that could potentially come across the six-yard box. Takahiro Tomiyasu has to take care of Johan Visser. Now, the reason this is really, really interesting and why this shows that this is someone who's got incredible awareness around him is because not only does he have to take care of Johan Visser here and be alert to his movement and to where the ball might land, but he'll also be well aware that behind him, Brentford have a man over. Brentford have two players at the far post um, in behind. And I think that's Jorginho who's travelled back there to help defend. Meaning that Tomiyasu has to also keep an eye on this channel here. He can't get from where he is now out to the far post to support Jorginho without leaving Johan Visser, um, you know, unmarked and in space for Brentford to cut the ball back to. And we all know what a good finisher he can be. Tommy Asu has to find that perfect balance in terms of his positioning so that should the cross beat the left back and should Gabriel make a mess of it too, he's there to mop up and he can provide some defence to the possibility of that ball breaking into the far post area. But he's also got to keep a hold 
of Johan Vissena. You can only do both of these things simultaneously if your positioning is right, if your distances are right, if your spaces are right. And Takahiro Tomiyasu, for me here, has got them absolutely spot on. So I'm not going to sit here and go through hours and hours of footage and clips and all the rest of it, but they were just two moments for me out of maybe seven or eight in the game, having watched it back in full, that I thought Takahiro Tomiyasu displayed exactly why we have no worries and no concerns about him filling at centre-back. You know, we we always go back to last season and we always talk about that injury to William Saliba, which was obviously massive. There's no question about that. But to have lost this guy at the same time was a real, real big, um, a big issue for us and um, and was probably equally as significant in the way things panned out. You probably have to say that. So if we take it on, um, let's uh, have a look at some of Emile Smith-Rowe's movement. And it's perfect timing because Derek just says, Hi, buddy. I did not think Emile Smith-Rowe played that well. He wasn't really able to put his mark on the game. Very leggy. I think leggy's a, a key word. And I totally agree with you on that. I think Emile Smith-Rowe, you know, is, is clearly very short of fitness. It was 499 days since he last started for Arsenal, which is wild when you think about it. Um, it's, it's just crazy. You know, it's really, really crazy. I expected him to not be up to full fitness. I expected him to last maybe a little bit longer than he did, because in the second half, I thought right from the off, his level really, really dropped. Um, but there were some positive signs from Emil Smith-Rowe's first half performance, and we're going to get into some of that now. Um, here's uh, a piece of play uh, sort of quite early on in the game where Arsenal are looking to build up. You can see um, that Smith-Rowe here has um, stepped up into the forward line. Now, this is something that Mikel Arteta always encourages his midfield eights to do. You can see Emil Smith-Rowe there. I've highlighted him, but you can also see on this near side that Kai Havertz is doing the same thing. The reason Arsenal do that, and in particular, I think it's really important when you're playing against the back five, is because you want to occupy people. You want to put yourself in situations where you've got 1v1s. And then you want to bank on the quality and the movement of the players um, that are in your uh, offensive third to be able to, um, you know, unlock defences, create opportunities, and then in the end, obviously, score goals. But by putting those five players into that sort of front line, um, what you end up doing, as I say, is occupying all of the defenders. That means the midfielders have to get back. And then Arsenal will follow that up with some more aggressive movement, which we'll come on to in just a second. But look at that here. You can see that from the right-hand side, you've got Charles Sago Jr., the youngster who made his Arsenal debut, debut the other night. Congratulations to him as well. Um, you can see that the distance between uh, Emile Smith-Rowe and Eddie Nketiah is fairly similar too. The same between Nketiah and Kai Havertz. And actually on this near side, uh, you know, you'll find that Reese Nelson is there as well. So Arsenal putting up a front five to deal with, um, you know, Brentford's defensive five or to try and unlock Brentford's defensive five. What that does then, if you're watching, is you'll see that a couple of Brentford's midfielders have dropped deep because they are worried about leaving Arsenal forwards in one-on-one -on -one situations with, with their defenders. So what do they do? They drop and that creates what we always refer to as the space in between the lines. But for Arsenal to be able to suffocate their opponents, that aggressive movement among the front line then needs to be followed up. And you can see it here with Jorginho, um, who's in the middle of the park there. 
but is making an aggressive movement, you know, considering he's the defensive midfielder, that's a pretty aggressive position to be in. And he's obviously flanked by Ben White and Jakub Kivior, who, uh, of course, have stepped forward from the defence. All of a sudden now, when you look at how central their positions are and the spaces that they're being tasked with operating in, you can understand, can't you, why Mikel Arteta prefers to have players with the physical profiles um, to compete centrally at fullback. So that's a really, really key point as well. If we take this on, uh, you'll see that Emil Smith-Rowe has now moved. He's realised that there's no clear way through. Arsenal are knocking the ball around. They're not really having much joy in terms of, um, you know, penetrating that Brentford backline at that point. So it's all about that space in between the lines that I mentioned. And here you will see Emil Smith-Rowe dropping into that space in between the lines, looking to get on the ball, operate here and try and make something happen. This is something that Martin Erdegaard is great at. If you wanted one player in the Premier League who understands that better than anybody to show you how to do it week in, week out, you'd probably go to Kevin De Bruyne. But after that, it would be Martin Odegaard. There's no doubt about that. Emil Smith-Rowe drops into this slightly deeper position, into the space in between the lines. All of a sudden now, he's pulling those Brentford defenders that were stuck to him like glue out of the back line. And look at that space in between now. All of a sudden, the Brentford back five that was really compact and, and really sort of pulled together in order to prevent people um, from getting in between them has now got a gaping hole in it. Why? Because Smith Rowe coming deep has brought one of their three centre-backs, Zanka, I think it is there, with him. All of a sudden now, there's space to exploit. Now, if I take this on a little bit further, he's on the ball now and in possession, in between the lines, Emil Smith-Rowe is in a position to drive at that Brentford defence, drawing in um, all three of the defenders around him. Look at that. They're all in. They're all they're all around him. They're all, um, you know, drawn to the ball, attracted to the ball. And that creates that little bit of space for Jorginho, who's just inside of them. And when the ball, of course, makes its way to Jorginho, he's then able to play uh, the return pass to Emil Smith-Rowe, who's now entering the penalty area. And the rest is down to his individual ability here. Take it on a little bit further. He was on that occasion just missing the final touch. He manages to dance his way um, through a number of challenges. He's combined brilliantly with Jorginho in the build-up. He's done all the hard work. He's left three defenders in his wake, but just fails to apply that finishing touch, allowing Flecken to make the save. In fact, in total, Emil Smith-Rowe and Jorginho's combination here has taken eight Brentford players out of the equation. And actually, when you look at this opportunity from this angle, I find it hard to believe that he's not stuck this in the back of the net. You know, he proved himself to be a pretty accomplished goal scorer a couple of seasons ago, Emil Smith-Rowe. And you just look at this. I mean, he's got the goal at his mercy. He could put it anywhere. You know, he in the end, he puts it low, quite close to Mark Flecken, which allows him to make the save with his right hand. Um, and although we've waxed lyrical about the build-up play and, and the combination between him and Jorginho, which I think is a pretty good combination, judging by uh, the evidence that we saw the other night, you know, he, he's got to finish this. Uh, look how much of the goal he's got to aim at. Anywhere here and you score. Anywhere there and you score. But he just hits it too close to Mark Flecken, who's able to make that save. So that's my... Um, Emil Smith Rowe stuff. Um, you know what? Let's just take that back for a minute. Anything that you guys want to ask or talk about 
with regards to Emil Smith-Rowe. If you're in the live chat, let me know and we'll do that uh, before we move on to the next point. Don't forget, like the video if you haven't done so already. Uh, we're not that far off of 100 likes. So come on, guys, let's get the likes on the board. Also, subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. It really, really does help. Really, really do uh, appreciate it. Um, John Daly says, Emil Smith-Rowe plays with his heart. He wants it so much at times. The one-twos he does, always driving forward. He leaves it all out there on the pitch. Just a shame that his legs were a little bit rusty. Um, Matthew Lee um, says, Jorginho and Emil Smith-Rowe's link-up happened two or three times in the first half. It certainly did. Um, James says, he's warming up. Normally, he'd score that. Essen says, does Emil Smith-Rowe have Wilshire vibes off the ball? Is he a bit weak? I think he's built much better um, than Jack Wilshire. It's not to criticise Jack Wilshire, but I think he's got the right build, Emil Smith-Rowe. Obviously, injuries have been a problem for him. We knew that, you know, the injury that he he had surgery for a little while ago was an ongoing thing over a long period of time. That's why they decided to take that course of action. Hopefully now it's just about building up his fitness and he's not going to have any setbacks and he's not going to have to uh, look back too far. Anyway, taking this on, I uh, just wanted to talk about Arsenal's high press um, because, again, you know, even with totally different personnel, you know, Charles Sago Jr. in the front line, Reese Nelson, Eddie Nketiah leading the line, and with, you know, Jorginho and Smith Rowe in midfield, we saw this uh, applied again. And this is in the build-up, of course, to Arsenal's uh, only goal of the night, the goal that ultimately decided the tie. Uh, just have a look at this. You can see here um, Arsenal's high press forcing that misplaced back pass. And Ketir obviously eventually went on to find himself in behind. He squared the ball to Nelson, who scored. But if you look at this, you know, carefully, you just pause it with this freeze frame. You'll see Sago Jr. You'll see uh, Eddie and Ketir. You'll see uh, Reese Nelson. You'll see uh, Emil Smith-Rowe. Uh, you'll see Kai Havertz and you'll see Ben White all involved in this. Now, if you want to have an effective press, you need the buy-in of all of these players. You need them all to be on it. You need them all to be fulfilling their roles because if they do that, they force things to happen. They can force turnovers. They can force mistakes. You can feel as a defender when you're trying to play out, if you're faced with wave after wave of pressing movement like this, that you've got nowhere to go. That can lead to panic. And that's ultimately what is the, the cause for so many mistakes that we see. When the ball comes across to Reese Nelson, he finishes it brilliantly. He senses the opportunity. Look in the first screenshot where he's initially positioned and where he ends up. It's once he realizes that that pass is wayward, it's head down. I'm going to get in the box. I'm going to try and make something happen. And he does exactly that. Collins come across to try and cut out the pass. Got it wrong. But also when I talk about the, the sort of impact of the other players following up with the next wave and the next line of pressing, this is a really, really good example of this. I know people are going to say that I'm just saying this to try and justify what Kai Havertz did on the night. I'm not. Genuinely, I, I said it after the game that we needed to talk a little bit about his performance. But in this instance, you can see that he is, of course, um, following up. He is behind Reese Nelson. Which, if you go back to, you know, the first screenshot, you'll see that, of course, uh, Christian Norgard is in there. And he, I think, takes a little bit longer to start the backtracking run where he could potentially get close to Nelson because he knows that Havertz is lurking in behind him. And I'm not saying that Havertz deserves loads of praise for this. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is 
you can see the knock-on effect of, of an aggressive press when all the right trigger points are met. And this is a really, really good example of that. So that was um, some of my analysis uh, from the win over Brentford on Wednesday night. Um, I did want to get that out to you guys yesterday, but just never got around to it. And hence why uh, I thought we'd include it in this episode. Anyway, um, your time now, your questions will be answered for the remainder of the show. Um, I can see there's a fair few of you with me live at the moment. So if you wouldn't mind, spam the chat box now. I'm joking. Don't actually spam it. Like literally put questions in there and we'll work our way through as many of those as we possibly can. We're going to take another really short pause to give you an opportunity to do that. And I'll be back in just a moment. Don't forget, if you want to support the Chronicles of Aguna podcast, you can by signing up uh, on the Another Slice platform. It's a members platform. It's almost like Patreon, um, but it is a, a members platform that is so um, friendly for the creator. It's unbelievable. Um, I'm so chuffed with um, with the way it all works and stuff. It's been brilliant. Uh, we've got more and more people signing up um, sort of as the weeks go by, which is amazing. Your support means I can make more and more content um, and you'll find that there's been more content over the last couple of weeks. Lots of games to cover, of course, and lots of stuff to be across. Uh, but we did put out our latest members podcast yesterday, which was a members mailbag where you guys send me questions and we literally build the show around your questions. Um, we try and like, you know, there'll be weeks where we get 30 questions. But what we try to do is. I don't know what happened there. One second. My microphone died. Did it die or did something else die? Then the plug went. <laughs> yeah. Of course it did in the middle of a live stream. Just when I was trying to sell something as well. Typical, isn't it? Uh, one second. We'll take a, a really short pause and I'll, I'll try and fix that. Give me a second. Okay. I think we're going to have to do it like this for the remainder because I have no idea uh, why the power's gone on the uh, power pack here, which is providing um, power to the microphone. Bear with me uh, just a second. Let me try one more thing and we'll see if we can get this resolved because I appreciate the audio quality. It's no good when you do this. Keep the questions coming, by the way. We will get to them in just a sec. Okay, I think we're getting there. I think we've got power back in the building. Hold on a second. There we go. Is it going to switch over to the right microphone now? Hey. There we go. Uh, apologies. I have no idea what happened there. It was like a little power pack just switched off. Um, apologies for that. But anyway, we're back now. Um, I was just in the middle of a, a bit of sales there as well. Um, I was just saying that you should check out uh, the Chronicles of Aguna over on the Another Slice platform. You can sign up for £5 per month and um, you'll get access to lots more content plus access to our Discord server. And um, more than anything, you'd be supporting uh, me to 
continue the dream basically um, and bring you guys as close to daily content as possible um, covering all things Arsenal, which is amazing. Okay, um, let's go over to the chat. Uh, th there's a good one. Um, here we go. Tom cursed you, obviously. Uh, did Tom sell you his mic? Uh, <laughs> uh, James says Tom sold him that mic. Uh, what a difference, um, says John Daly. And this is all because he binned his classic headset. Now the microphone has given up on him. Do you know what? I I nearly put the headset in the bin. I didn't have the heart to do it, so I kind of left it on the side. And then the new one I bought was rubbish, so I dug the old one back out again. Um, I need to look over the weekend and find a good one, actually, to um, to replace that with permanently. But yeah, I know Tom Canton always seems to have problems with his microphones as well on StreamYard, so maybe it's not just me. But anyway, where are those questions? Let's get some of those questions. Let's uh, dive into as many as we possibly can between now and the end of the show. Don't go. Um, okay, let's take this one from uh, Essen, who I'm going to assume is not an Arsenal fan. Or no, is an Arsenal fan. Sorry, I, I thought you said, why does your fan base, when I read that at first glance, but it's why does our fan base treat Saka like a child and ask for him to be rested every other week? He's arguably our best player. The City fans ask Haaland for Haaland to be rested, or Madrid fans, Vinny Jr. They don't ask for it, but it does happen from time to time because they have the squad depth, particularly in Manchester City's case, to be able to do that. And it's not even necessarily about your overall squad depth. It's do you have another specialist in that position? For example, you reference Erling Haaland. You could throw Julian Alvarez in up front and that wouldn't weaken Manchester City much, if at all, in my opinion. So that's the difference really, isn't it? Bukayo Saka is one of the players that has, you know, established himself as, as one of our key men. There's no doubt about that. There's no question about that in my mind. But it's also a position that you would argue we don't really have a standout second option in. You know, on the left, I don't think we have that problem. You know, OK, right now we've got a, a sort of an influx of injuries and, and we've got sort of a group of injuries that are causing us a bit of a problem on the left-hand side. But generally speaking, you've got Martinelli, you've got Trossard, you've got Nelson, you've got Smith-Rowe who can even play there. You even could put Fabio Vieira there. You could put Kai Havertz there if you really wanted to. Yet on the right-hand side, we don't have that array of options, which is why Bukayo Saka plays all the time. Mikel Arteta was asked this as well in his press conference today. You know, yes, Bukayo Saka has that run, doesn't he, of, of consecutive Premier League appearances. And I think one of the questions put to Arteta was, would you, you know, would you risk Saka if he came to you and said, boss, I'm ready to play you know, because I want to keep that run going. And Arteta said, well, I think he's mature enough now and understands enough about his own body now to know whether or not he can help the team. And I think that's the right answer. In an ideal world, we'd have another option that we could rotate in for him in certain games because he needs it. And it's not just a conversation, this about Bukayo Saka. This is about everyone. Do you think it's a coincidence that we have more and more injuries in football? Because I don't. We are overloading these players. They barely get a summer these days, you know, since the COVID season because of the delays that were caused by that and then having to make up international competitions, i.e. the Euros that we missed, having to do it a year later. And then we had the World Cup and and then, you know, we've got a Euros next summer. These pre-season tours as well are, you know, they must be really taxing as well when you think about all the travelling that's involved and how early you have to start 
traveling around ahead of the new season just to kind of meet those obligations. I think we're killing players at the moment. I really, really do. And Bukayo Saka is an example of that in that he has looked tired at times. But, you know, I think this is a much wider problem and one that we really, really do have to look at um, as a sport. I, I really do. Uh, Hakon says, uh, do you think Emil Smith-Rowe needs a loan? No, because I think he's not in the stage where he needs to prove himself. I think we all know what he's capable of. We all know how good he is. Mikel Arteta knows how good he is. But, you know, now it's just about building up fitness. And once he is at that level of fitness that you would say is acceptable, then I think he is good enough to compete with the players that we have. For me, we keep talking about depth, don't we? And the need for it. You know, Emil Smith-Rowe will offer us that. And there's no reason why if he doesn't get back fit and, and continue performing in the way that we all know he can, he can't compete and be a regular fixture in this eleven. The door's not closed for Emil Smith-Rowe, not by any stretch of the imagination. Let's take a couple more. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Uh, John says, uh, will Arsenal ever request the international players to stay at home and rest? Saka and Rice played in all the friendly thoughts. I don't think so. Um, you know, other than what Alex Ferguson used to do, which was fake injuries for his players. I don't think there's really any way around it. And I think players, A, want to play for their countries, but B, you know, will be conscious of what decisions like that can mean when it comes to the tournaments. You know, if you're the England manager and all throughout the, the season, Bakayo Saka has been dodging England call-ups because he doesn't quite fancy it because he's knackered, then you know, that manager may then be reluctant to either have him in the squad for the next international tournament or reluctant to give him the starting role that he obviously craves. Um, Mikey says he's a victim of his own talent in the comments, and I think that is absolutely spot on. I couldn't have put it uh, better myself. Let's take a couple more. Uh, Angela says, um, change of tack. Why hasn't there been any progress on Manchester City and their 115 charges? I have no idea, Angela. I wish I could give you an answer to that. And now we've seen all the stories coming out of Spain about Barcelona as well um, and, and what they're being investigated for. Now, listen, I don't know that either of those two clubs are guilty, right? It would be wrong of me to sit here and say, yes, they're guilty. They should both be punished. I don't know. The truth is, I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. Nobody really knows outside of the circle. It is frustrating that it's taken so long because... Yeah, and that, that's whatever the outcome is going to be, right? Whether they're found guilty or found uh, innocent, it doesn't really matter. The fact that this takes so long is, is a shambles because it leaves a dark cloud hanging over our game and over our sport. You know, Manchester City had an incredible year last year. They won the treble. But what if they're found to have broken those rules? What if they're found guilty? Does that not mar it? Does that not, you know tarnish it, taint it. Of course it does. And, and this is why these things cannot be allowed to rumble on. In my opinion, the Premier League should never have come out and put the statement out that they did unless they knew that they could make it stick and they could make it stick quickly. They should have waited until they were at that point because by releasing it, it damages the credibility of the league. It damages um, so many different things and aspects of our game. And I just hate the fact that you know, again, I don't know that they're they're guilty. I don't know that they're innocent. I don't know either way. But the fact that these things are, are hanging on, uh, hanging over us and hanging over them, I think is more damaging because I think this really needs to be resolved quickly. And um, the longer it takes, the more people are going to ask questions. You know, if you're the Premier League and you're adamant that they've broken these rules, 
well, actually, people are going to start to think that maybe you're not quite sure or you're barking up the wrong tree. Why? Because you haven't been able to make it stick. You haven't been able to follow it through with anything other than saying you're making these charges. Where's the progress? If you had that solid a case, you'd have the progress. So this hanging over these clubs, Man City, Barcelona, it does damage for them, but it also does damage to the reputation of the leagues and of everybody involved, the governing bodies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why hasn't there been any progress? The answer is, I really don't know. I really don't know. Uh, John, thank you so, so much, mate, for your really kind words in the chat. Battle Gnome says, popping in on my way to work. Great show today. Thank you uh, so, so much, mate. Really, really do uh, appreciate it. I'm um, going to pick a few more questions, I think. Um before we go, uh, big hello to Mohammed, who says, big up, Harry. We must rest our important players for Manchester City. We cannot take chances. I disagree with this. I disagree with this. I disagree with this idea of saying Manchester City is on the horizon. So let's rest more than we need to at Bournemouth. Essentially take that for granted that we're going to win. Let's rest more than we have to in Lons um, and take that for granted that we're going to win that as well or get the result that we want. Because football doesn't work like that. And in particular with the Premier League, you know, there are no guarantees. You go somewhere, anywhere in this division, maybe with the exception of Luton and maybe Sheffield United, maybe Burnley too these days. Sorry, Vincent. But you go anywhere and you're not at it. You can be punished. You can be beaten. And um, and if you were to go to Bournemouth tomorrow and drop two points, then even if you beat Man City next weekend, what good have you done? None, because you've cancelled it out by the fact that you actually drop points against a side that you should have beaten every day of the week. So for me, that's not the way to do it. You know, take it one game at a time. If there's one game in this run of three now of Bournemouth, Lons and Manchester City, where I'd be more open to taking that kind of risk with regards to the team selection, it would be the Lons game, not Bournemouth. That's how I see it. I know one side are in the Champions League and should be at a totally different level. but. Given the group that we're in, I think we have margin for error. In the Premier League, if we have aspirations of winning it, I'm not saying we're going to win it, by the way. In my mind, you know, the one game that you can get away with it in, if you if you have to do it, is Lons. In an ideal world, you don't. But if you have to, that's the one for me. Um, Mohammed says, do you agree with me that we must not play any of the key injured players tomorrow to wrestle for City? I disagree, mate. Uh, as I say that just then. Um, I disagree. Dave Mack uh, says we should take the Bournemouth game just as important as any other match. Completely agree. Um, Salahuddin says, uh, considering the situations around injuries and transfer rumours, can you see Arsenal dipping into the transfer window in January? I don't think there'll be any real um, sort of big plan for January. You know, I know a lot of people are saying Arsenal wait until January to move for Ivan Tony and all the rest of it. I don't think there's a big signing planned in January. I think if a opportunity presents itself, something that would have been in the plans sort of further down the line anyway. And there's an opportunity to do it at that point to maybe give us a bit of a boost or a little bit of something extra that we need. Then perhaps we do it. But I don't think there is this big grand January plan. Um, that's just my opinion. It's not based on any information I have. Um, it's just my uh, my thoughts um, on that one. OK, um, I think, guys, we're going to leave it there. We've been running. Uh, you know, what? I'll take this one that's just coming. I haven't read it yet, but I haven't seen Jid in the chat for a little bit. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I missed him. Uh, it says, why are Eddie and players that aren't the fan favourites the only players 
who the bar and standards are set high for. Eddie needs to be nine out of 10 every game or else his inclusion in the team is questioned. Um, I, I think I'm quite fair with Eddie and Ketia. Um, you know, I, I think I'm quite fair with him. I, I think I give him enough praise when he deserves it. But I'm also not afraid to say when he underperforms. And I thought in the North London derby, he was poor. Um, and, and that added to the frustration around this idea of Jesus actually being marginalised out on the flank. I didn't think he was good enough that day. And I'm I'm quite comfortable and happy to say that. But I also think he's been brilliant on certain occasions this season. So I'm not saying that he should be left out of the team. The reason I didn't pick him in my team for the Bournemouth game is because I don't want to see Jesus playing wide. It is the bottom line. I prefer to see Jesus starting at centre forward. That's my preference. And I know that if Eddie Nketiah is in the side, the one that Mikel Arteta is more likely to shoehorn into a wide position is Gabriel Jesus, not Eddie Nketiah. If I thought there was a chance that Eddie was going to play on the left wing, for example, I wouldn't mind him playing there. But I just don't want Jesus being taken out of the centre because I think he is the centre of so much of the brilliant attacking work that we do when we're clicking. You saw it last Wednesday against PSV Eindhoven. For me, he's got to start at centre forward. And that's why I left Eddie out of my team. Because then it becomes a debate of, well, is Eddie a better option on the left flank than a Emil Smith-Rowe or a Reese Nelson? And then I think that's a fair argument to have. Um, but yeah, that that's my reasonings for it. Right, guys, I am going to leave it there. Thank you so, so much for joining me. Really, really do appreciate it. I promised you a bumper edition. We've been going for well over the hour now. Uh, so I hope you've had your Chronicles of Aguna fix or Arsenal fix, whatever. Um, don't forget to leave a like on the video. There's nowhere near enough likes on the board considering how many of you are watching. Subscribe to the channel if your brand's banking you as well. It really, really does help. And I will see you all tomorrow uh, with some reaction to Arsenal's trip down to the South Coast where we meet Bournemouth and Donny Iriola, an old friend of Mikel Arteta, uh, will be going toe-to-toe -to -toe with our boss uh, for this one. And it should be, fingers crossed, a cracker. I'll catch you all tomorrow. Until then, take care of yourselves and uh, all the best up the Arsenal. Come on, you Gunners. I'm Martin Tyler and you're listening to Harry Simeon.